Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello and welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Katie Miller and I am joined today with my friends, Kevin. Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. Josh. Josh Benson, not splitting a border, but at the very bottom of Illinois. Basically, I'm in Kentucky, in Marion, <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> and Brian. Hey, Brian Zalmer from KU Presents at Kutztown University. And my favorite friend on the podcast today, Danielle. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is bullshit. Wow. <laughs> Um, I was going to say Danielle Van Hook from the Alden and McLean, Virginia, not split any borders, but I am technically walking distance from the district and Maryland. Oh, interesting. I learned a lot about geography today. All right. Well, welcome everybody. I'm so excited to get into our interview, but before we do that, I have a question as we normally do here that ties into the conversation we're going to hear with our good friend, Sarah Barish from IMG Artists. I would like you all to tell us about a performance you saw as a child that was truly impactful or opened your world to a new type of live performance. So when I was a teenager, um, my parents, <laughs> I think it was just for one season, bought a subscription to the theater series at California University of Pennsylvania, which is a state school here, um, which is the school that they went to. We would get dressed up and go and see the performances that the theater department there did. And I remember it being like a bunch of musicals and, and some plays. But the thing that made me see theater differently, because I had seen a very one-dimensional version of theater, was that they did a farce once. I think it was Noises Off. And just like seeing how funny a show could be was so incredible to me. And I like I I wish there were more farces. <laughs> Can we start producing more farces? I distinctly remember in elementary school, the junior high band coming and doing a Christmas concert and me thinking that was the coolest thing in the world. And those were the coolest people in the world. And of course, that led me to learn to play trumpet and be in the band and commit to a life in the arts uh, following that. But that Christmas concert and just watching the junior high band set up in a gymnasium playing Christmas carols was the coolest thing in the world to me. It's interesting, like trying to to pinpoint this moment um, because I didn't really have much interaction with the arts as a child. I think my mother tried, like she would, you know, take us to certain things, but like it just never really clicked to me um, up until like much later. I mean, I think, well, I guess as like a young child, I mean, I was still a child, but like eighth grade when I did my first musical, like that was the moment that I went, oh, like these are the things that my mother was trying to to show me. Um, and that was the moment where like everything really started to click. And it was the moment that I became more interested in going to seeing, you know, really what a symphony was or going and seeing, you know, what a, a circus show was like. And so I think from that, it's really what what sparked everything is doing a musical. That was the the impetus. For me, it's kind of like I don't have any one particular concert or performer that comes to mind, but just more of a a festival that my grandparents used to take me to. My mother's parents had a place up in the Catskill Mountains and every summer we'd spend time with them. And at the Hunter Mountain Ski Resort, they had this big summer festival. I think it's been going on like over 50 years now. It still happens, even though it's a little different than when I was a kid. But back in the uh, 1900s, when I was a kid, they had this festival every week. It was like five or six weeks long in the summer where every week was a different theme. So one week would be, you know, Irish and Celtic. And so all week long, they'd have live performances from from visiting artists, professional artists. They would have all the food vendors and all the 
the crafts and the um all of the, the the wares and and activities was all built around that they had all these different things and so every every week we would go there to these different things and it, it was just a very immersive arts, like visual arts and performing arts, all this stuff happening at once. And that was very impactful for me. I'm like, oh, I, you know, I, I don't think that's when I was like, I got to have a job in this, but that's when like, I want to do this. I want to come here every year and, and be a part of this. I love that, Brian. Uh, even though I'm known as Katie Pure Michigan Miller here on the podcast, uh, if you don't know, I actually grew up in Western Massachusetts in Pittsfield, just around the corner from our good friend Simon Shaw. And a specific moment for me was I grew up watching the show Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego with my brother, and we loved Rockapella so much. And because uh, we were so close to Albany, New York, when they came to Albany, my mom took us to see them in an outdoor amphitheater. Uh, Must have been late spring, early summer. I was probably in fourth grade, maybe. And we drove the hour to Albany, saw the concert, totally in awe because like this group that we've seen on TV our entire childhoods is performing right there. And the parents, the mom and dad of one of the band members was sitting behind us. And so uh, my mom just started chatting, not knowing who they were. And they're like, oh, our son is you know, on stage, one of the band members. And I think for me, I don't know that I realized this at the time or it clicked, but like thinking back on that, it's a moment where I go, oh, artists are people too. Like they're not (laughs) just people that are, you know, these superstars are performing or like untouchable, but they're real people with real family members because their parents are sitting right behind us on like the concrete steps of this amphitheater in Albany, New York. Maybe a precursor to my work in artist relations management where you're really getting to know artists at like a deeper human level and they're they're just people too. Um, and I think that solidified my love for Rockapella, my love for acapella music, um, and a little bit of like giving me that imagination that like you don't just have to sit in a concert hall or a theater, you can do art outside too. So I think that was like a pretty important um, developmental moment for me as a future arts administrator. All right. So thank you all for sharing. I cannot wait to get into this conversation with our friend, Sarah. I hope you enjoy. Hello, my name is Sarah Barish and I am an agent at IMG Artists. I've been with the company for almost 18 years and I am primarily the Midwest agent, though I do work with some other states such as Pennsylvania and New Jersey. I book and work on engagements for our roster of attractions, dance, jazz, world music, and some classical crossover as well. Wonderful. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on There's No Business Like. I am so excited to chat with you today about your life and career and get into some of the behind the scenes details of what it's like being an agent in our industry. So are you ready to go? Yeah. All right. Well, I would love to really kick off with your origin story. So how did you get into the arts? What was your like big moment to get you started? And then how did you end up with IMG and where you are today? I grew up singing and dancing and playing clarinet, various artistic pursuits. And musical theater was a big part of my life. And I was at my dance studio almost every day of the week for many years. I did the Nutcracker every year and recital in June. Um, I just fell in love with 
performing and being creative in that way. Also, the sense of community that I got from being in bands and at the dance studio and other uh, facets of my life. So I've always enjoyed the arts. Also, my parents were subscribers at our local community theater. Yes, and yes. they were they chose the front row. So that was not necessarily my current favorite place to sit, but I really did have a wonderful vantage point of the regional performers there. And that's really where I fell in love with going to the theater. Thank you, mom and dad, for being like such instigators of that love. I, I really love that. Yes. Yes. They also brought me to amazing like world music concerts, like Zydeco bands and gospel choirs and you name it in, in our community. Also bluegrass. I mean, I have a very wide ranging musical taste and I think it's due to my parents and their love of um, most genres of music and performing arts. Oh my, I just think that speaks so much to the value of exposing your children to really anything in the arts starting at a young age. Um, I did have a question. Was the clarinet your choice or was that a, I stumbled into the clarinet moment? (laughs) So both of my cousins played clarinet and I think I may or may not have inherited one of theirs. It was just in the family. And so that's sort of how I fell into it. I think I did get to choose which instrument. It just made sense to choose clarinet because that's what Jason and David played. (laughs) I love that. It's a family legacy now. The clarinet's a family legacy. (laughs) So you had such like, oh, all of these experiences as a child. So then how did that manifest itself as you grew up and moved on to high school and college? I decided to pursue vocal performance and music education in college. Definitely was inspired by my various music teachers over the many years in school. I was fortunate to have a music program from elementary school all the way through high school. In college, I I actually had a pre-nodule on a vocal cord, and that to me was a bit of a wake up call, like, wow, I I don't know that personally, I can rely on my body as my income (laughs) generator Mm -hmm. for a career as a singer. And also music ed, I had a lot of hands on teaching experience in college. I have so much respect for teachers. I, I just discovered that it wasn't quite for me. There is just so much intensity the day, you know, you're just on all day. Mm-hmm. Um, not that oh, it's gosh, terribly yes. different from being an agent, I guess. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but but yeah, I guess being in front of the classroom, it I don't know, just something about it just wasn't the right fit for me. Mm-hmm. Though I think the impact that music educators and educators have is tremendous. Um, and it's probably one of the most important jobs in the world. I decided to pursue an internship at Glimmerglass Opera in college during my summers. That's where I really fell in love with arts administration. I had a little bit of experience actually at my dance studio in high school. I managed some logistics with ticket purchasing and other admin at the desk there. And then I've always been like a very, I guess, organized and business oriented person personally. So I pursued the internship at Glimmerglass in housing and transportation. I had some wonderful mentors there, colleagues. That's where I fell in love with the admin side. Side of things. Post-college, I applied for positions primarily in vocal and opera administration, position in the vocal department division at IMG Artists opened up. I applied and I got the job. And I've been at IMG ever since, although my role at IMG has has changed over the years. 
Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that initial starting role and then how that has grown and changed over your, like you said, almost 18 years with the agency. Initially, I was managing logistics and contracts for singers and conductors and some other artists in vocal. And I really got and, you know, deep understanding of all, everything that goes into each and every engagement, educational outreach and performances, uh, what particularly singers need, um, which I already had some background in from Eichlemer Glass, you know, hotel requirements for singers are a bit mm-hmm. different, you know, humidifiers, windows that can open on occasion, things like that. It's right. very specific and important. I worked on actually like Flicka, uh, Frederica von Stada and Samuel Ramey's farewell recitals and some other really tremendous artists just right out the gate at IMG. Then I eventually applied to, it was a unique new position to book singers with orchestras and continue to, I was um, at the time assisting one of my mentors, Romana Jaroff at IMG. I would continue to assist her, but also take on some booking myself. That's how I got my first experience in in sales and and booking artists. Then about a year, year and a half later or so, the Midwest agent position opened up and asked me if I'd be interested in booking sort of everything except for singers. I've always, as I said, had a love of all kinds of performing arts. So that was very exciting to me. Mm -hmm. I had always gone to dance performances and, and other performances of IMG artists and beyond in New York. I was excited to take that role on. I got that job. I've been the agent for the Midwest since 2011. Wow. So with that growth trajectory over time at the company, I mean, being somewhere for 18 years and in one place and 18 years in our industry is, is you're kind of a unicorn. I mean, not a lot of people, especially in this day and age, have that longevity and stay in one place for that amount of time. So what has it been about either the company or the work that has really kept you engaged with IMG for all that? And because there's I mean, I'm sure there has been a lot of change and transition over the course of your tenure. So what has kept you there and really focused on the the agent side of the industry? It's it's my colleagues. They are just incredible. We're we're really collaborators. We have regular meetings with managers and the agents. And while lots of colleagues have come and gone over the years, there is still a core group that that has been at IMG for a while. And it's really those people that keep me going and you know make me want to stay, as well as the roster that I get to work with. I mean. I feel very lucky to have started at a company like IMG with it's it's a huge roster. I'm a personal fan of pretty much every artist that I get to work with. And I enjoy talking about them, obtaining work and engagements for them, going to their shows when I can. So it's really the, the artists and the colleagues that keep me going. I can imagine you can't really pick a favorite artist that you work with because that would be like picking a favorite child. <laughs> but what what are the different challenges with the different genres that you manage in terms of thinking about right fit for venues or what their logistics are or the costs, right, of like of putting them out on tour and how that works in different parts of the country. So can you maybe give us a little bit of insight into what it's like managing so many different genres at one time? What's great about it is I can talk to 
many, many, many venues in the Midwest, and we can probably find something that's a fit. Budget-wise, there is a wide range as well as genre. And, you know, most, if not all of our artists offer school performances or workshops, or even if it's just a meet and greet, just some kind of community engagement, which is so important and is one of the most rewarding things I get to do. I think taking the time to listen to the presenters that I work with and really try to find something that that meets their needs. Sometimes, you know, they'll come to me and have a very specific artist that they're interested in, but other times it's just an open book and we mm-hmm. take a look together and it's it's very exciting to have something to offer, almost almost something for everyone. Is there a genre you have found has been more difficult to book than others? Is there more demand for one thing than something else? And what's your strategy then in making sure that all of your artists have the work that they need to be sustainable? It's changed over the years. I think currently there is uh, more and more emphasis on ticket sales and and how the artists will do, you know, at the box office. There's always been, I think, a lack of federal funding and, you know, corporate sponsorships and other things uh, in, our, in our country and, and elsewhere. So it is definitely more and more challenging. We also need better systems in place, I think, to gather and keep track of the ticket sales data and, and so on. A lot of our roster is, quote unquote, you know, mission-driven programming. It meets the needs for diversity and certain grants, the community engagement, as I said. I mean, we definitely have box office successes with some, with some artists. Some are, you know, complete surprises. They'll, they'll perform way better than we expected, which is always exciting. But I would say a lot of times it's other programming such as Broadway and comedy and other you know, pop music and that helps subsidize the artists that are on our roster and uh, allows them to continue to, you know, go to communities across, you know, Mm -hmm. the territory that I work with. It can be very challenging because when it comes down to ticket sales data, it's not always a slam dunk at the box office, I will say. Um, But I'm also very transparent and honest with presenters, I'll say, you know, look, this, this may not be, you know, a complete sellout for you, but, you know, it checks these boxes and um, it can really make an impact in your community in this way. That's sort of how I've always described each and every artist. I will say dance has become a bit more challenging than it used to be. That's one genre specifically. It's not dire. I mean, many, many venues are still presenting dance, whether it's dance attractions that have a little bit more commercial appeal or, you know, very esoteric dance as well. Um, and, and I do think dance is alive and well, but it has gotten a bit harder to book than it used to be. Some tours may not be as robust. I do think presenters are committed to finding new and creative ways to, to present dance, work with local studios, and get people to continue to come to that. You mentioned um, ticket sales data. So just as a like a logistical thing, especially for those that are maybe newer to the industry, there's like Polestar, for instance, collects commercial like pop rock, you know, country show sales data. Do we have a similar system or do agents have a similar system on the more artistic and mission driven side? Or like, how do you as agents collect that information uh, and utilize it? Is there something 
place I don't even know as a presenter. So some of our artists do appear on Polestar and some of those websites and um, the data is there. But but for most of our artists, that's not a thing. And unfortunately, we have to manually collect that data. We've written it into contracts that you know presenters should give us ticket updates leading up to the show and or after the show. It just doesn't always happen, right? I think everyone in the industry is, is understaffed, overworked in many ways. So it's definitely something that we have to stay on top of. Um, we've had interns help us out over the years and other colleagues, but we are still refining our system to this day. Also, our database that we have doesn't really even have a place to put ticket sales data, which is so funny. So again, we have our own like Excel. I mean, it's so archaic, you know, just spreadsheets <laughs> that keep track of it. And okay. um, and again, it's becoming more and more important to talk about mm-hmm. these things. So I would love to see an industry-wide initiative to help make everyone's life easier and keep yeah. track of that data. Yeah, no. And I, I've gotten those follow-up emails from you, Sarah, <laughs> being like, I need your ticket numbers, which, is, <laughs> which I, as a presenter, are always happy to to share that because I, I we recognize the importance of that, but it does just fall through the cracks sometimes. And like you're on to the next thing and on to the next thing. So, but that's helpful to to know and understand. Okay, so then let's talk about booking and routing for a second. So we're recording this kind of in the height of booking and routing season. And I think there's some renewed interest or passion in revisiting the conversation around routing, you know, collective routing and how do we make things more affordable from both the artist side and the the presenter side. So as an agent, where do you all kind of stand in those conversations and what do you want to see come out of those kind of renewed industry-wide conversations around this idea of being a lot more collaborative when it comes to routing in particular? I don't know that block booking is necessarily a reality for many parts of the country just because of geography and, and everything else but the idea of routing seems to have some juice again oh yeah um many of our tours are routed on the ground we pay a lot of attention to how far artists can travel the day of a show etc so there's a lot of thought that goes into our process most of our managers come up with sort of a, a ghost route as we call it they envision you know sometimes it's very specific you know this venue needs to go on this tuesday because we know they will do a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. This venue will take the weekend and so on. So um, we do have sort of a template in place when we get started. That often does change given realities of, of actual availability and interest. But but yeah, it's, it's a great starting point to have to work with. And I love it when venues collaborate and communicate with each other. Like if, you know, a, a specific presenter has an artist holding a date and I'll very clearly say to them, look, like you are the only offer in or the only hold in so far. I'd love your help in getting the word out to your colleagues in the region or in the state or whatever it may be mm-hmm. to help spread the word. Um, also, there are some grants that are regional, the Mid-Atlantic grants. So I know a lot of times presenters, especially in Pennsylvania, who I work with, they'll say, okay, who else do you have in in mid-Atlantic region? Because we'd love to get that grant going. And and that is inspiration for them to reach out to colleagues, help spread the word and get them on board. So if presenters were more active on their side of the equation in terms of finding those routing partners, how much easier does it make it for you to finalize an artist booking? It helps me move a little faster. Most of our tours, we don't want to accept an offer 
with the hopes that the week will fill out. You know, if we have a full week in place, we can go ahead and confirm that a lot faster. So it helps, especially presenters who really want to move their season along quickly or they book early in the in the booking cycle. That's very helpful. I think the process, it would move faster. And also there are opportunities for, you know, more fee uh, flexibility. If there are multiple presenters in a region on board, it does cut down the costs. We're all dealing with inflation. The artist touring expenses have gone up, gosh, at least 25% we're hearing. And especially these international tours, we really have to be careful about fees and making sure expenses are covered. So again, if it's a very well-routed week or two, that helps tremendously. As I mentioned, we're in the midst of booking season while we're recording this conversation. So can you kind of take us from the top of the booking cycle? So kind of like September, right, when things really kick off in earnest through about seven months, right, through kind of like the end of March when everything's really locked in. So like, what are what is that time like for you as an agent, that like seven month window? And then what are all like the pieces and parts that really have to come together before you can truly lock in artist bookings and feel confident that like booking season is is over now that's ever really over but like you kind of get through the thrust of it it really starts with well what's touring what what are we focusing on that season we have a roster of artists that are sort of with us every year we also have special projects that we'll work on for maybe one or two seasons so it's really communicating with the managers we have a highlights brochure that to me is is extremely useful because it's it's really everything in one place it's a link that i can send digitally as well as a brochure that i can hand out in person and so really creating our highlights sending out an e-blast uh, announcement saying what's what's touring in the the upcoming season so really gathering that information tour periods other specifics um, such as you know travel and other logistics how can we book these tours how many weeks do we need to fulfill in order to make it viable and so on other artists we do have some that can do one-off engagements so it's not always a routed tour situation really just obtaining all of that information for each and every artist I have I use the highlights brochure regularly and that's external, we share that with presenters. And then we have an internal sheet. That's like our little cheat sheet of all the fees, all the timings, because it's a very large roster and a lot of information to keep track of. So I think that's another useful tool. My own system, I have a log to keep track of conversations. It's organized by presenter. I haven't quite figured out the best way to organize it by artist yet. So, and I've been doing this for how long? So it's one of those things you, you just, you're always refining systems, making sure you're organized with that. So Again, once all the information is collected, then it's scheduling Zooms and calls and conference meetings in person with the venues that I work with, making sure they're aware of what's going out for that season and asking them, what what are you looking for? What's doing well for you right now? What do you want to see more of? Really staying in touch about their needs, getting those conversations started. That starts really over the summer, but it it gets very busy in September. I have, you know, my calendar is quite full with all of those Zooms and phone calls and in-person meetings. I attended the MAX conference this year, the Midwest Arts Expo. Occasionally I'll attend other conferences as well. That's very productive because, you know, I'll meet with 
50 or 60 people over the course of just a few days, you know, and then you come back and you download and, and send follow-ups and, and so on. So that's sort of the phase that I'm in now is continuing to follow up with folks that I saw in person, as well as some people who maybe were unable to attend following up on Zoom some phone calls. And that just goes on and on a lot of times, uh, <laughs> you know, for, for months at times, right? And then um, we do have regular booking meetings, as I said, with managers. So they will share specific artists that they're needing answers on. They have specific venues they'd like me to reach out to on behalf of those artists. So that sometimes helps frame my day. It's not just chasing colleagues of mine throughout throughout the country, but it's also sometimes very artist specific. Okay, today I'm going to work on Cirque Calabante uh, or whatever it may be. Occasionally at APAP or even before APAP, APAP's in January, the Arts Presenters Conference. Leading up to that, we'll have some new artists to announce at times. So just adding more to talk about, make sure everyone's aware of of what's new, even post fall conference season. Then it's it's sort of deciding, okay, am I going to focus on a specific state today or a specific mm-hmm. artist? Go from there. So every every day, every week is uh, a different challenge and focus. Speaking of that, is there an aspect of being an agent that you wish the rest of the industry knew more about or understood better? That's a good question. I I don't think this is the case anymore, but I think agents for a while, you know, had this reputation as sort of being all about the money and not necessarily having presenters' interests at the forefront, right? But what's interesting, I think, about agents and perhaps what's even slightly different than an artist manager is that I'm really focused on both presenters' needs Mm -hmm. and artists' needs. If anything, I might lean slightly more to the, okay, I really want to do what's in the best interest of the presenter. I I definitely care deeply about the artist's needs, but it's the presenter relationships that I work with directly. I spend most time, you know, talking with presenters. And so I really get to know them and their needs quite well. I really want to honor that relationship and their needs while also making sure the artist gets the, the right. weekly nut or, or whatever it may be that, that right. they need. I really try to be very honest. If someone says, look, this fee is, is way too high for me, what, what can you do? I really do say, look, okay, this is the range or this is the very lowest we can go. And I'm, I'm just very, like I said, transparent about all of that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that necessarily all agents you know, operate in that way. But I do think for the most part in our sector of the industry that that is the case. If I quote unquote cold call someone, it's okay to say no. And, and it's okay uh-huh. to tell me, look, that's that's not going to work. But maybe we could talk about X, Y, and Z instead. What do you think precipitated that change in attitude or understanding about the agent role? Do you think is that a, just a post-pandemic thing and all the conversations we've had around this really being an ecosystem and needing to be more collaborative? Or did you see that shift kind of before 2020? I definitely saw it even more post-2020. I think even before, as, as I've gotten to know people, I think that's really it. And maybe it's just me. You know, I don't know how much it necessarily applies industry-wide. And, and because I've only been at one agency this whole time, I think it's just once you really get to know people that there's a deeper understanding. I think post-COVID, the ecosystem factor really came into play a lot more frequently, which is yeah. a wonderful thing. 
I think from the presenter side as well, like I certainly have a much better understanding of all the different roles and aspects and just a more of an appreciation of what you just said, like that really that agents do have other people's best interests at heart and under they understand just as much as we understand like that we need each other right and it's got to be collaborative so that like the art can still happen that's like what I always think about is like we just want the art to happen we want people to be in seats or be outside with us or wherever the venue is and just see good art like that's yes. the ultimate goal, right? Yes. And and I will say that's another thing about our roster, not to go on and on, but um, <laughs> it's really extremely high quality. Even if a show does not completely sell out at the box office, there is this amazing artistic experience. I mean, my favorite part of my job is receiving the phone calls and the emails post show or post school show or post, you know, educational outreach, glowing reviews, which is 99% of the time the case with with our roster. And that's what really keeps me going. I can't always travel to see every show I book. I mean, that would be impossible. Just hearing that feedback, really envisioning what it was like to be there is mm-hmm. and, and how it made an impact on community is what keeps us all going. And yes, that is what it's about. Mm-hmm. It's all just ensuring the art continues to happen. So you have had, like you said, a variety of roles at IMG and you've really kind of built from the bottom up. So if somebody wanted to explore working for an agency like IMG, what would your recommendations be? Like what sort of training or experience is needed to work for a booking agency like yours? It really helps to have some hands-on experience. It's very rare that at IMG specifically, we'll hire someone with zero arts admin experience. Even if it's just internships, I think that is key. I was very fortunate. The internship at Glimmerglass was and is a paid internship. And that's really what I needed to make that happen for me. Finding those internships that work for you in in the field. Also being able to navigate difficult conversations. It's not always easy. Um, There are some artists that have very specific communication needs and and presenters as well, for that matter. So I think it's just really having some experience navigating personalities in our industry, sort of knowing the ins and outs. But yeah, it depends on the role that, that someone's specifically looking for. There are some positions where you're way more face-to-face with presenters than artists and vice versa. The right. same skill set does apply to both. I mean, and most younger people, you know, starting out in an agency are going to start in that more like artist logistics role. So in terms of that, like what do they need to know or what did, what do they need to be thinking about when either applying for or stepping into that? Because like I've done artist relations management. It is tough and it's you know it can be a really tough part of the field to be in because there is so much being thrown at you all the time what's great is we do have some systems that we can share you know how to keep track of every step of an engagement I remember former colleague of mine helped create this amazing template it was like a checklist for every engagement we try to provide those tools but really it's having your own system with emails and phone calls just to keep track of everything and ensure that it's a lot to juggle. So having some experience with fast-paced work environments, high volume, and also being willing to put in long hours as needed, you know, seasonally. It's not like this necessarily all year where you'll work extremely long hours and have a lot each day to do. It's being prepared for high volume. 
we all just really have to be so passionate about what we do to be willing to put in that time and effort that's needed. I think also if you have performing experience of some sort that helps give you that background, you know, to put yourself, it's so important, I think, to put yourself in the shoes of the artist mm-hmm. or the presenter, really empathize, even just a little bit of performing or touring experience or managing logistics at another company uh, and, and so on really helps set the stage for success at a company like IMG. I think there's also like a relational element to that. So not only just managing the the logistics, but also like being able to quickly establish a relationship with the person at the other other end of the email. Like when I was doing artist relations management, I would find that like I'd be working with a company manager and they're traveling in Europe and Italy and like we're emailing back and forth every day. And we're talking about like the weather and the food that they had and like the things that are happening on their end. Right. And it's just nice to kind of get to know somebody like that. And then when they actually come to your venue, you're like, you are the person that I've been talking to. Right. And you just feel a lot more comfortable from the get go when they finally like set foot in your venue. So I think like being able to be personable like that and, and establish a relationship even via email is one of those key things kind of on both sides of of that equation, um, because it can be really challenging. And then when something like does happen or go sideways, then there's a little bit more understanding there and you can work together better to rectify it. Yes. Yes. I, I totally agree. And it can be hard to do over email, but yeah, just opening the door for getting to know people. It's so important to developing that empathy and understanding. It does make the difficult conversations so much easier. And a lot of times, if it's a particularly difficult thing, I'll really try to pick up the phone and call before I send the email. Sometimes it, it just has to be done so quickly that, you know, an email has to happen. I think from the get-go, especially with singers, they would get a Met Opera engagement or a multi-week-long opera engagement when you factor in rehearsal and performances. And I would have to cancel these symphony bookings that were just one performance or maybe like three performances, you know? Mm -hmm. And sometimes like if it's like their dream opera gig that comes along and is extremely well-paying and takes up, you know, a couple months in their calendar, this one lone symphony engagement, unfortunately, would, would have to be canceled. I dealt with cancellations slightly even more frequently when I was working specifically booking singers with orchestras. It's something we all try to avoid, of course. But when that does happen, I think from the very beginning in booking, I was needing to have some difficult Mm -hmm. conversations. And that really helped me learn so much about how to how to handle those conversations. And, And yes, having a good relationship in place was really beneficial. Speaking about having hard conversations and leading and managing and all of this, like, have you found in your time in the field that your gender has impacted how you relate to other people or how other people relate to you? Because I feel like being a woman in this industry can be tough sometimes, to put it mildly. Yeah, I think I've been very fortunate in that many of my colleagues and and mentors have been women. That's certainly not always the case. Thankfully, at my company, there are a lot of parents as well. Um, I I have a child. And so it really helps. That's another reason I think I've been at IMG so long is that I have the, the kind of flexibility that goes with being a parent, the support that's needed. I've been very, very fortunate in that way. 
I do think it's interesting, you know, at first, especially like before I get to know someone, if it is a man, I, I may be more hesitant to have a meal with them or a drink with them. I might say, look, let's, let's do a booth meeting. I don't know. It's just, it's, that's just one example of mm-hmm. a thought that I have. Thankfully, I, I haven't had many uncomfortable <laughs> situations, but it's just something to be conscious of as a woman in, in this industry. You know, you are having meals and drinks with, with colleagues, sometimes one-on-one and just having that awareness and really being uh, cautious and careful mm-hmm. about, about who you spend that time with. And again, I, you know, it's, it's extremely rare for me that I've had those encounters, but yeah, the other uh, aspect is making sure I'm comfortable speaking up and having a seat at the table and, and all of those things being at this company for so long, I've developed relationships with my mm-hmm. colleagues and, and a, sort of a level of respect, mutual respect, but it might not happen right away. It's definitely constantly on my mind. And yeah, I I absolutely want to help grow and encourage careers for other women in the industry. And that's that's very important to me because I I was fortunate to have mentors of my own. Thank you for sharing that. It's not something that's always easy for us to talk about, but I and I honestly have not heard that perspective that you just raised in all of these conversations we've had. So thank you for bringing that up. It is really important to think about that in particular in our personal comfort and safety, frankly. So thank you for that. I really, I really appreciate that. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Surprise. I have a time machine. I don't know if you knew this, but the podcast has a time machine and we like to take our guests back in time to an earlier point in their career. And so I think I'm going to take you back to when you were first starting at IMG. You got that first job, maybe, you know, your first day walking in the door. What do you know now that you wish you had known then? I do know about this time machine because um, <laughs> I am a fan. Uh, I'm a fan of the podcast. Uh, yet I still did not prepare for this question. <laughs> Knowing that everything does not need to be perfect, I am a bit of a perfectionist. So being able to let go of some things in order to really prioritize what matters, that just comes with time and experience. But I would love to remind my younger self of that. Also, What's really exciting is that there is an end to the booking cycle, even if it's <laughs> even if it's not exactly as what everyone envisioned. There there will be a season. The tours will happen, you know, 99% of them, right? That's what I love about the cycle. There is an end date. And it may still go on past that late March timing. You know, there's always some trickling engagements that come in later on. But for the most part, there is this sense of accomplishment every year. So just knowing that that's in sight. What I love is is once you send out an itinerary, like when I was doing logistics back then, that's it. I mean, yes, you might get a phone call day of and things go awry and, and you know, you have to think in, in the moment. But, but for the most part, that itinerary has been sent, that artist has the tool that they need. What I love to do is give the cell phone number of someone on site that they can call first, maybe, because when they're traveling, if they're in Michigan, it makes a lot more sense for them to be communicating directly with someone there than me on my couch in New York. Just, Just knowing that if you provide that information, those tools, that there will be less last minute concerns that come up. We've all been through a lot the last few years. You know, we've been able to see each other at conferences recently and really feels like the industry is back on track. So what do you love most about working in the industry today? 
Uh, the colleagues. I mean, going to Max this year was even more engaging and exciting than than I thought it would be. It just having that time with most of the time, you know, like-minded people who love this, the same things, want to accomplish the same goals. It's so inspiring just speaking with, with colleagues, both at my company and at the venues that I, that I work with. Um, I feel so fortunate to have those relationships and, and it's fun. It's just, it's so fun to get to know people and hang out with people and, and to see the finished product because I'm planning now for the 24, 25 yeah. season. Some of these engagements won't happen for quite some time. Yeah. It's just, it's always exciting and engaging. Well, we will wrap on that note. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. It's been so lovely talking with you and learning more about your career and getting the the behind the scenes on, on agent life because it is something I don't think we talk enough about as a part of the, as a part of the industry. So thank you for all of your time and your insight. We really appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. It was so great catching up with you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share some information and insights with other colleagues. Katie, thanks for bringing Sarah to the podcast. I've known Sarah for many years now, and in all disclosure, I've I've worked with her several times at, at multiple venues, and uh, she's just a joy to work with, and she's a real person. What you hear is what you get. You know, she's very transparent and open, as she talked about in there, and how important that is, and it, it's really true. And I and that's why I love working with her. Yeah, Brian, I enjoyed hearing that conversation and hearing that you know, sort of like that transparency in negotiation tactic that she has. And because that's been what I have relied on for, for years now too, of just, you know, here's, here's what we can do. Here's what I can't do. And, you know, it's nice to hear that more people are starting to to do that or just being more comfortable with that. One of the interesting things that, that came up in the interview is the dynamic between male and female colleagues and and I can't speak to that perspective, but Danielle, Katie, do you have some insight into that that you could share with us as well? I mean, I definitely think it's different on the agent side, right? On the on the side of the industry that's like kind of doing the selling versus doing the buying, um, just because of the amount of people that they are talking to and the different kind of communication styles, you know, the different kind of business styles that people like to do, right? Like in the business world, or in more male dominated worlds, right? Like people play golf, like a lot of big transactions happen in not a formal business setting, like so not in the expo hall, like we've talked a lot about the hang and all of this and all of that. And I think that that's good, right? Because we're getting to know people on a personal level. And, you know, Sarah really kind of said it, but I, I do think that that concern is something that is, is just sort of always there. If you're like a female living on the earth of like, you don't really think to say it just because it's like a, a normal thing that kind of happens of just like, yeah, I don't want to be the last person left at this hang, right? Like, <laughs> Or, you know, I want to make sure that I'm standing outside with somebody else who's also waiting for um, a cab ride. But I definitely think in the agent seat at the table versus the presenter one, I do think that that's a much more vulnerable position. And, you know, she works in a group. Um, so other agents could, you know, go on those kind of things with her, especially if there was like somebody that she wasn't comfortable with. But there are a lot of agents, uh, female agents that work on their own when they can't do that. And I think the majority of our industry wouldn't take advantage of that situation. I mean, I think we work with very wonderful people, but I think just the nature of like being somebody who identifies as female, like 
yeah, it's, I mean, it's always going to be in the back of your head. There's never a time when you're not thinking about your personal safety. This is one, one of those moments where I like it really highlights my privilege um, because this this is an area that I, I didn't really consider about in our industry. Um, and obviously, like as a straight white male, there are a lot of things that I don't have to to contend with. But, you know, I've always you know, sort of thought about our conferences and the things that we attend as sort of that safe space. Um, but the reality is, is that like, unfortunately, like that's not always the case. Of the places I've been in the evening in this body, yeah. like an arts <laughs> conference is like one of the ones where I feel the safest, like to yeah, be clear. That's good. that's good. And I mean, like, and a lot of times this comes to a conversation of like female identifying people versus male identifying people. But like, that's not to say that a man in that position, you know, also might not be in a safe place. I was going to say, I've been in that situation where I've felt unsafe, but it, I'm sure it's like not even a, a, an iota of a percentage of the amount of times that my female colleagues have those experiences. And to your point, Danielle, the industry is just a microcosm of the greater society. So like you said, it's not most people, but you don't know who those predator type people are because they're so good at masking and, and disguising and fitting in and, and until it's too late, unfortunately. you know. So that's why it's important. I think at conferences too, we always team up. We have the people that we go out and we always make sure we don't leave someone behind. We have groups and we watch out for each other. I recently was sent to a science and technology center conference as a part of uh, my role at the Center for the Arts by myself. Um, so I traveled to a different city in a different state by myself, which I'm totally comfortable traveling by myself. But, you know, I didn't know a single living soul at this conference. I was walking into it completely blind, didn't know the organization, didn't know anybody who was going to be there. Like Danielle said, like it is just part of everyday life. I had to think very carefully about where I wanted to go and how I wanted to spend my time. And I immediately found a conference buddy, met a wonderful colleague from Denver, Colorado area. And we spent the entire time together because we were both there by ourselves. Whenever I'm in that situation, I always find another woman to make sure I have a buddy, to make sure I have somebody that I can keep an eye on. They can keep an eye on me. And I was really glad that Sarah brought this up because I've not heard other women in our industry talk about that. Yeah, the other thing that I thought was really interesting was just hearing the sort of behind the scenes look at, at, a, at an agency um, that, you know, we don't normally get to hear and get to to see and kind of talk about. And it was also interesting to hear how, you know, her talking about artists and putting artists into venues is almost a similar approach that venues are taking when they're programming their seasons as well. You know, I asked the question about ticket sales data and how they track that. And I was really surprised and fascinated that there's not like a, a system really in place across the industry for that side of, of the more mission driven sort of programming, um, similar to Polestar or something like that was just really fascinating to me. The interesting thing about that is that Polestar's data has actually become less and less relevant. Primarily in 2017, it was bought out by Oakview Group. And in turn, AEG and Live Nation don't share their data with Polestar any longer because it's owned by a competitor. And with that being part of it, the data is less and less fulfilled within Polestar now. And so I, from a commercial booking standpoint, I use Polestar less than I ever have. I used to use Polestar a lot when I was at the Rialto and I even had problems with it then. I always used it as a guide because the problem is when you get some of these larger commercial acts, sometimes in the contracts, they say you cannot report to Polestar or they'll they'll pick and choose like, oh, if it's good numbers, they want you to report. If it's not, they won't. And so it skews the numbers. And and the whole point of it, if it was actually used and, and was transparent and, and real and legit all the time, 
then it would be a great tool. But yeah, for those reasons, I no longer use it too. If there was a an independent organization like Polestar was at one point, I think it would be and has been in the past was a great tool. That tool was once a great asset for the commercial end of the industry. And it could be something like that could be a great asset for the industry as a whole, both commercial and non-commercial programming. That goes back to, you know, the agents are keeping a lot of this data themselves. Like they, almost all the agents will collect this information. But again, going back to the transparency and Sarah, that's why I love working with her because she'll tell me the good or bad. She's not going to sugarcoat it things. She'll tell me straight like what happened recently with that artist and like, okay, this is where they performed recently. This is how they did. This is, you know, the, where the ticket numbers are at the moment because they do track all that. And, but she's also beyond just tracking it. She's willing to share it and, and they're open and transparent about it. And that's important. And the open, honest transparency is what's beautiful. I, I recently had a promoter that works within our building call me and say, Hey, did this group really do these numbers there? And the numbers that they were providing to this promoter were three times what their actual ticket sales numbers were for us. And that's where the Oof. lack of transparency was a, you know, a recent experience that I've had. Um, and luckily I was be able, able to guide the promoter and say, no, they didn't do 582 tickets. They only did 183 tickets. And to be clear, we're not talking about Sarah Barish or I am. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, Sarah, that's why Sarah's honesty and transparency is so beautiful is because so many of us have a relationship with her and know exactly how honest and transparent she is. Um, and that is, that makes her an absolute gem to, to work with for that reason. I think that also speaks to the relationship and the long game that I think with all of the agents we've talked to is if an agent inflates the numbers when they sell you a show one time, you know, it doesn't do that for you. Maybe it happens again. You're not going to work with them beyond that. So they may have gotten that one or two sales at one point, but then that's like a venue that that artist can't go back to. And like, what if it's like in a great spot on a route? Unless they're gaslighting you, think, making you think, oh, it's just you not getting the numbers, but we're getting them all over here. You know? Anyway. Yeah. Well, that would suck. Mm -hmm. It's hard when, when there's no transparency. So I just wanted to make a note. I In the conversation with Sarah, we chatted a little bit about artist relations management, artist logistics. And I mentioned specifically a relationship or a rapport I had built with a company manager um, and, you know, kind of talked about that example. Well, that company manager, I wanted to share this story, um, was for a really famous dance company that we were hosting at Interlochen. And we had been talking back and forth for weeks, right, with logistics, but also about their time over in Europe. I had built like a really lovely rapport back and forth. And I was really glad that we did and we were able to establish that because I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast, but I have two dogs, Wally and Gus. Long story short, we had adopted Wally just a few days before this dance company arrived on campus and owned him for 45 minutes. And then he ran away and was missing for 12 days. And during the, the whole search was going on during the time that this dance company was with us. One day, it was really super long day. I was supposed to be there till probably midnight, but got a call saying, we know where the dog is. We think we can catch him. And because I had built this really lovely relationship with the company manager, I was able to say like, this is my situation. I really got to go find my dog. And she was like, I got it. Don't worry, go get him. And so drove the 20 minutes, eventually caught the dog. That was the night that it happened after 12 days of him being missing. But I don't know that I would have been comfortable leaving a professional situation like that if I had not been able to build that relationship with that company manager. And thank God I did because 
I think that was the only chance to get Wally back, <laughs> to be quite honest, um, because it was it was a really hard 12 days. Um, but I think it just shows that like on both sides of the equation, things can go wrong on the artist side. Things can also go wrong on your side as an administrator and just like a person in the world. So I wanted to just like share that really happy story and example of like why it's important to get to know your colleagues on the other side of the email um, really well, because you never know when your dog's going to run away and be missing for 12 days and you got to go find them. The pandemic was a great example of that for me. Once conversations needed to start happening in that situation, it was so good to already have a rapport with all of the agents that we were going to be working with on 20 different reschedules and on, you know, cancellations and and whatever it, it ended up looking like in each different situation. But that rapport is so incredibly important all across the industry. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you to Sarah for her time. It was wonderful diving into the behind the scenes of agent life. And we appreciate you all spending time with us today. We'll see you next time on There's No Business Like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. And Brian. Because <laughs> I just took a drink. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't Hey, hey, you. hey, Katie. Um, <laughs> what was the question? And I think if we take a moment to create that product, this is how we become podcasters full-time. Let that platform. Yeah, in our spare time, that we'll put that on Josh's lap. Cause... Yeah, Josh, I need you to start programming, all right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'll, we shouldn't I'll start joke, because next thing we things. know, he'll like, in two days, uh, all right, what do you think of this? I got this algorithm I created. I just, Can you uh, go on and test it? Oh, Josh Star. <laughs> go to joshstar.com. And, I might drive uh, home tonight. I'm going to get a text. Hey, check this link out. Can you give it a test drive and see what you think? Katie, I'm so glad that you got Wally back and that he was safe and sound. The only thing is I, I thought you were going to say, and that tour manager was Sarah Barish. <laughs> <laughs> we can add that in. <laughs> That's also my new excuse for leaving a situation. It's like, shit, man, I got to go get my dog. <laughs>